Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the third of our series of summer special episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast, providing an outside-in perspective on HR. The brutal killing of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police on May the 25th has unleashed a sustained and unparalleled wave of protest around the world. This terrible incident highlighted once again the scourge of racial injustice and the responsibility we all have to speak up against discrimination in any of its ugly and reprehensible forms. We all need to commit to help to drive change in our companies, in our HR and people analytics communities, and in our societies. The guest for this episode of the podcast is diversity strategist Torin Ellis, who has worked with companies ranging from small 20-person startups to some of the biggest multinational companies to help them identify inhibitors that stall the consistent achievement of the diversity, equity and inclusion objectives achieved through recruitment. We start our discussion with the glaring injustices that the killing of George Floyd once again highlighted and then transition to how HR and recruiting professionals can support their organisations to be truly inclusive and equitable by following a simple and purposeful mantra. Focus on people. In our conversation, Torin and I discuss how the killing of Mr. Floyd and the protests it's inspired made Torin and other black people he knows feel. What those of you listening can do to help make a difference. We look at why true diversity, inclusion and equity results require leadership, unwavering support and above all a focus on people. We talk about why hiring managers are at the crux of progress and how data can reveal some uncomfortable truths. And finally, we talk about examples of companies including Nike and Alloview who have created more inclusive organisations. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested in how to embed diversity in their organisations to create more inclusive and equitable workplaces. So that's business leaders, CHROs, senior HR leaders and anyone in a people analytics HR business partner or talent acquisition role. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Torin Ellis to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Torin. Um, great to see you. We haven't seen each other, I don't think, since Paris last year for Unleash in, in person. But um, you know, now it's, we're having to get used to this virtual world. Can you, can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to, to your background and, and your current activities? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first and foremost, I absolutely appreciate you for allowing and trusting my voice with your listening audience. So thank you ever so much for that. Uh, and you're right, uh, it has been a little over a year since we've we've physically placed eyes on one another. But again, thank you for, for having me here. So for the listeners, I am a diversity strategist, a risk mitigator. I operate a little bit differently in the space than other DNI consultants in the sense that I focus on optimizing talent acquisition processes through the lens of diversity. I'm also a practitioner. So I'm not a person who's only a coach or a trainer, if you will, but I'm a consultant that gets in and knows how to rock some Boolean strings just like the best of them. So uh, that's me, Sirius XM, podcast, Crazy and the King, author of the book, Rip the Resume. Delighted to be here. Sorry, it's, it's great to have you. You know, obviously, you know, it's been a lot happening in 2020. It's thrown quite a lot at us. Um, you know, there's been shock and wide way, right, worldwide condemnation about the brutal killing of George Floyd. We, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's provoked protests all over the world under the Black Lives Matter banner. And, and, and once again, it's just shown that the, the curse of racial injustice, both socially 
and in our companies, let's be honest about it, has still not been resolved. You know, as a black man, how are you feeling at the moment? So I, I, I got to tell you, I feel optimistic. I know that may come at as, as a bit of a surprise, but uh, I, I tend to think that, you know, even though the world is hurting right now, as T- Tony Morrison would say, that we must be focused on the potential and the outcome. Black people have taught the world uh, abroad how to to love. And we have been a hated and often hunted people. And yet we've continued to figure out a way to teach the world how to love. And so I'm optimistic. I rise each and every day, as James Baldwin would say, with hope. I innovate new hope each and every day that we are going to make progress in this time that we are going to force organizations to recognize the bias and the injustice and the inequity that they have built into their corporations and their corporate cultures, that we are going to force cities to pay respect to the progress that we are trying to, to, to pursue and seek. Uh, and so I just, I'm just optimistic at this particular point. It is so incredibly unfortunate what happened to Mr. Floyd, but it's not the first time. No. And so it's not to say that I'm anesthetized to what happened to Mr. Floyd. I just understand that it's not the first time. Unfortunately, it won't be the last time, but that we have more people in the fight, people like you, David, people like others that are saying we cannot do this anymore. It certainly, I mean, it, it, it certainly seems a real movement around this and it seems to be some momentum as well. And I guess the important thing is now it's not just you know, two or three months of momentum. It's, it's got to, it's got to go on and on, isn't it? Until we, we, we solve these cha- these problems. You know, and get it, get it, get it sorted out, so we have a more just and fair, you know, social system and also a more just and fair organisation. Well, and part of that is telling the truth. You know, and so from stages all across the world, I say number one, people have to feel empowered. They must feel like there is some space for them to be able to tell the truth. And even if that space doesn't exist, that they have to run the risk of some degree of sacrifice. Yeah. Telling the truth sometimes is painful and it may cause and position you to have to be married to fight with sacrifice. But it's a marriage. It's a fight that you have to endure. And so for me, I just see right now as a fever pitch. And I say to myself that if, in fact, we we recognize where we are, then we will understand that this right here is a moment unlike anything that we've seen since the 1963-64 Edmund Pettus Bridge incident. And it was at that time that white America, I don't know about London, but I know white America saw broadcasts on their TV screens, black people, peaceful protesting black people, church going black people, being beat up, being fire hosed, having dogs sicked on them by the police. So I think it's, one of these times where America is recognizing, for real, we got a problem. And unfortunately, we have a problem that we've long ignored. And so we cannot continue to ignore it. I hope that this moment pushes us into the history books as having done something that had not been done in the last 50 years. And yeah, I mean, I mean, you said how you're, you're feeling optimistic. Well, I think that, you know, and I think that's great because I think at the moment there is some optimism around. How, how, how are other black people that you know, how are they, how they feeling? I guess it's mixed emotions. Oh, it, you're absolutely right. It's a wave of emotions. You have some that are depressed and fatigued with the conversation around racial inequality. You have some that are disappointed that people are still willing and fighting to put up Confederate monuments, and yet they don't understand that 
you wouldn't put up a, a statue of Hitler in a Jewish community. You wouldn't do that. And so for me, it's baffling that some white people do not understand what it is that we are trying to convey to them just in, in, in the most common of sense. For, forget political party and affiliation, just from the, the, the essence of humanity, why, in, why would you fight to put up things or, or to say or to do, to demonstrate in ways that show that you have no capacity for empathy, that you are disconnected from humanity? Why would you even do that? And so, yes, we have a number of Black people, friends of mine, that are going through a wave of emotions because, you know, on, in, in some ways, David, we're like, we're tired of having this this discussion. Yeah. Like, we don't want our children to have to fight the same battle. We don't want to have to engage in the workplace with microaggressions. We want to be able to operate with bring your whole self to work. So I, I, it's it's an evolution of of, 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 of emotion. But what I say, David, often is that life is like wrestling a gorilla. You don't quit when you get tired. Yeah. You quit when the gorilla gets tired. And this life right here is going to continue to come at us in many shapes, forms, and fashions. And so we just need to gird ourselves with strength and we got to keep fighting. I mean, one of the things I've seen coming out around this is people trying to educate themselves better. You know, a great example for me is my own son. So, you know, you may have seen on the on the news in the US, there was um, there, there was protests here. Um, and in Bristol, uh, a statue was pulled down of a, a chap called Edward Colston, who was a slaver. So why that statue is still up is beyond me. But my and son me, started asking about it. And, and let me tell you, let me jump in real quick. You know, I did see that the protests were happening in London. But one of the images that stood out for me was an image from Reuters, and it showed a black man ushering a white man away who had been, you know, something happened to him. I don't know what happened to him because it was a still image. Yep. That's the capacity of love that I'm talking about. Even in the midst of our fighting for what it is that we're fighting for all around the world, we still find a moment to find compassion, to wrap people in that love that I often talk about. I'm sorry to have cut you off. No, 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 that's fine. And actually, and that's that. Still, the the white man who'd hurt himself was actually part of the right wing group that was there protesting against the Black Lives Matter protest. But still, the black man took him out of trouble and took him to safety. So yeah, you're right. He really showed compassion and love at a time where you know you wouldn't have blamed him if he hadn't felt those sort of things. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, the statue in, in in Bristol was interesting, as I said, because it. Edward Colson is a quite famous person and people have been trying to ask for this statue to be pulled down for a long time, quite rightly, because he was a, he, he made his money up from the slave trade. Um, he gave money, that money, or some of that money as, 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 a, as a philanthropist to Bristol, hence there's loads of kings named, named after him in the city. But my son started asking, Daddy, why have they got a statue up of someone who, you know, made their money from the slave trade? He's 11. So I thought, well, if he can ask that question, you know, why aren't, you know, why aren't politicians and people in power asking that question? And I think, you know, one of the good things that's coming out about this is that people, you know, those sorts of people who are in authority are being forced to, to answer those those questions. And hopefully we'll see statues of that ilk being pulled down or being put in a museum, maybe where, you know, you can see, oh, well, people used to put statues up like this, you know. So I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. And I know there's been stuff like that happening in the U.S., um, as well, you know, you know, you talk about the Confederates and stuff like that. There's yeah. lots of those statues up there still that people hopefully are now going to start bringing down. 
you know, absolutely. And again, I, I, I understand history. And, and what I understand about history, you know, having grown up in the Midwest, I grew up in Iowa. So what I understand about history is that my teachers made it a point to not really give me all of history. Yeah. You know, they like to start our conversation in school, by the way. They like to start our conversation with slavery. They don't want to tell us that we are kings and queens. They don't want to tell us that all of humanity, if you put your finger on the map of where the first person was born, that person was born in Africa. Yeah. They're not telling us that history. I remember from, I think the word is cartography. All of our life, David, when we grew up cartography-wise, the map of Africa was always smaller than America. But if you look at the continent of Africa, it's a lot larger than America. A lot larger than America. So my challenge to people that are listening to this conversation today and we can get into whatever you want to talk about from an HR tech and tech and TA and all of that. We can do all of that. But my challenge today is that you be honest with yourself. Be honest with the fact that there are some barbaric and I don't even know the word that I want to use, just some very terrible things that have happened historically. Mm-hmm associated with a lot of these things that we revere, monuments, posters, street names, city names. There are some barbaric and very demonstratively ugly history associated and attached to that. Honor and respect that, but put that shit in a, 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 a museum, if you will. I'm not saying it needs to be thrown in the river, although I'm not crying over a statue. Being thrown in the river. They did it, you know, several weeks back in Baltimore. They did it with a Christopher Columbus statue here. They threw it in the the river down in Baltimore City. The challenge that we have is that a lot of these statues, for instance, when I think about Stone Mountain down in Georgia, Stone Mountain is the biggest monument to the Confederacy. And they legislated that monument, if you will, that it can't even be. It, it it's going to take an act of the state congressional body to be able to touch it. They've been blazing. Are you familiar with Stone Mountain? I'm not. No, no. I won't, so I won't spend a bunch of time on it. You can look it up. I'm going but to. <laughs> they've emblazoned these three Confederate generals, murderous, racist, rapist generals. They've emblazoned them on the side of an incredibly large mountain in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and it's legislated. You can't do anything to it. So it's like, it's it's like a, a Mount statue. Rushmore. It's like a, it's Mount, like a Mount Rushmore yeah. of, of Confederate generals who are trying to rip the country apart. And this is who you want to revere? Now, nah, we just got to make sure that we spend some time being honest with history, it, particularly the history that we are not taught particularly the way that they've slanted history to be more in their favor versus not. We got to recognize that. And that doesn't say that I, as a black man, am better than you, David, because everyone who knows me knows that I embody humanity. Mm. I love people. Absolutely love people. However, I'm not willing to allow people to tell me uh, anything less than the truth, especially now in this age and stage of my life. Yeah. And I think you're, you're, you're right to do so. I mean, 
there's been a real groundswell in our community, you know, um, you know, talent acquisition, HR, people analytics, of wanting to do something to help. You know, what are the, some of the things that, that we can do to help, irrespective of whether, you know, ethnicity, you know, what can we do to help? other than educate ourselves, frankly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The education is extremely important, but I think when we operate inside of our organizations, we must you know, recognize that if in fact we are, as I said a moment ago, going to allow people to bring their full self to work, then we may, we may need to make adjustments for that. I'm not suggesting that workplaces become daycare centers, community organizations, nonprofit in thinking. I'm not suggesting any of those things. I'm just simply suggesting that when Torn and David walk through those doors, we swipe our badges, we bring to the workplace our condition, our circumstances. We bring all of that with us to the workplace. And so we can't work and talk about corporate culture with ignoring what it is that we, you have a family. You understand? I have a family. And yeah. we have different experiences. And so we must be operating inside of our workplaces with, I think, a more acute sense of how do we create the environment that allows Torin and David to both collaborate, coexist, um, you, you know, sync up with one another in ways that that they've never experienced before. How do we do that? And what is it that we should be measuring? I think where we have fallen short, David, is that we have focused so much on some of the data and some of the things dealing with our desk and our keyboard and our product roadmap and our service offering. We've done more focus on those things and less focus on the individuals. And so we've lost sight of, in my opinion, we've lost sight of how to really treat the person as a whole human. We We've we've softly put uh, coffee machines and you know ergonomic chairs in in spaces, and we've tried to make them uh, more favorable by offering flex working schedules, if you will. All of that has been nice, but I don't know if we've paid enough attention to the human. And no. so when I say the human, I'm saying if women have historically been compensated less than their male counterparts then how do we innovate in a way that allows them to experience a different benefit package, a different investment schedule, a different experience in the workplace that, you know, reminds them of how important, how valuable they are. I don't think that people are doing things um, because they don't care. I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm just challenging us, focus more on the human and less on some of the intangible or the tangible things of, our workplace. And I think we, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, something that Adam Grant wrote recently really struck with me, actually. It was the uh, research data backs it up that, you know, when majority groups stay quiet, and I suppose majority groups he was referring to as white men effectively in the workplace, they inadvertently, uh, inadvertently license the oppression of marginalized groups. So, you know, it, where, it, it, you know, if white men stay quiet, you know, people are penalised um, for, you know, raising up issues, of whether it's, you know, women or ethnic minorities, you know, they, they, they raise issues around diversity and equality. If white men stay quiet, then they, they, those people are penalised. If white men actually are part of that conversation, they're more likely to be applauded for it, which is dreadful, but it really shows that, you know, you can't be silent. You need to actually stand up. Yeah, you got to recognize the power structure and no matter, you know, how much we like or don't like to say it, 
white men are still in power. They control the allocation of resources. They get to set the agenda in many instances. And so you have to make sure that for me personally, I feel it's extremely important that we include the people in power in the conversation. I'm not saying that we defer all decision making to them. I'm not saying we revere them and we operate as if they No, I'm just saying they should be sitting in the room and we should be working in concert to do something different, whatever different is. I look and think back to uh, August of I want to say 2017 could be August of 2018. David, don't don't quote me. But uh, (laughs) Deloitte got away or they did away with their ERG groups, their employee resource groups or business resource groups in your organization. Uh, And so the reason they did away with them is because white men didn't feel like they were welcome. Pause. (laughs) White men didn't feel like they were welcome. So for me, I just see that as an absolute fail all the way around. What is it that you were doing inside of your ERGs as leaders to not signal or to virtue signal to white men that they weren't welcome? What is it as a white man that you are seeing when you are working through or walking through the corridors or you are reading email correspondence or you are looking at readout reports of what the ERG did? What is it that you were seeing or were not seeing that suggested that you could not be a part of the group? What is it from a CHRO standpoint that you were observing that you could not or you could have put your hand on and said, no, we need to make sure that's what inclusion is all about? I understand that people say that they want some safe spaces, but I can have a safe conversation and have you sitting in the room because I'm comfortable telling the truth. Like I have no problem saying what is what I'm experiencing or, but that's who I am. Everybody may not operate the same way that I do, but I still think that we should have a, a collective of individuals working to solve these problems. So you're absolutely right. White men cannot be silent. They need not be silent. And for the ones that are, especially if they're silent because they feel a loss, like speaking up is a zero sum game. If I allow them access, if I give them opportunity, if I allocate resources to them, then I'm going to lose. If that's the posture that you have, then you don't need to be a leader. No, no. And I suppose the problem with most of our organizations, they still are run by a group of white white men in their 50s and above, really. So they're not diverse. It's not diverse. It's not inclusive. And it's, is it surprising that our organizations then have problems, you know, around, you know, uh, around, you know, let's call minority groups, you know, but, you know, women aren't a minority group. They're usually 50% of the workforce or more. So, um, but not at the high level. That's another, that's another example. You know, it's the language in which we use when we refer to black people as minorities. Well, yeah. No, we're not minorities. When you look the world over, most people are, are of a darker skin tone. So we are not a minority, but we've allowed that language to persist for far too long and we've become comfortable with mediocrity. I'm not comfortable with mediocrity. I'm going to challenge mediocrity. That's not to say that I'm going to be a word police. Mm. It's not to say I'm going to be a sensitive individual inside of the workplace. I'm just going to hold people accountable. That's just what it is for me. So I think, you know, certainly if we look at the role of HR and what should HR and HR leaders be doing, you know, maybe changing the language is is is, is one of those, as, as you say, and actually using the right language would be helpful. But what are some of the other things that, that HR leaders and teams should be doing? So you talked about this, you know, importance of actually 
helping people bring them whole, the whole selves to work and understanding people at an individual level and, and, and tailoring benefits to, you know, benefits to them as, as an example. What are some of the other things that, that HR leaders and teams can be doing? And they can continue down that path of making sure that they are focused on the people inside of the organization, treating the people inside of the organization as people and operating inside of their interests in the business. I think that HR for far too long has protected the business. I think that they have focused more on the issues and the initiative of the business and not so much so the people. When I think about Me Too and the Time's Up movement, I think about how many women have gone through something that they didn't necessarily need to go through. I think about the infractions that Black people and the microaggressions that Black people have endured. They didn't have to necessarily go through them because HR uh, was complicit in sweeping that up under the, the, the virtual rug, if you will, the digital rug. I think that they need to be focused on people. I think about HR organizations that are administratively in posture and they're not looking at people with disabilities. They're not focused on the LGBTQ community. We need to focus on people. And if they focus on people with the mindset of being more of a business partner and not a cost or line item, then I think that we'll move in the right direction. There's no one prescription as to what they should do in their organization. But the one thing that they have to do is focus on the people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the signs are, you know, there's lots of talk about things like employee experience. And you do see HR, you know, the more progressive HR functions now, understanding that actually if we focus on the people, not only is it better for the people, but it's actually better for the organization as well. Absolutely. Um, And I think that hopefully we'll see more of that, um, you know, in, in the coming years. And let's hope some of the stuff that's happened this year, you know, with COVID-19 as an example, actually that will be accelerated and we'll start seeing that HR now are you know, acting as the, almost the custodian of the people in the organisation and always elevating them in the conversation with, with senior leaders. Absolutely. And when we think about these listening sessions that a lot of executives are having, HR should be having listening sessions. When I go into an engagement with a client, one of the things that I do is listening sessions with suppliers. So who are you doing business with? I want to have listening sessions with those suppliers. Who are the HR tech vendors that you have in? I may have a listening session with the HR tech vendor and bring that information into how I form and help them shape their DNI strategy. It's important that we do a great deal of listening. And so I think HR can, they can be a great business partner. They can take care and protect the business, but they can also do a lot more listening so that they understand how do we effectively provide support, provide presence, provide voice, provide trust to the people that we say we care about. And actually, I was going to talk a bit more about some of the work that you do, actually. So obviously, you help predominantly talent acquisition, but also HR by extension in organization, help them to infuse DNI into how they hire, develop and retain people. Now, what are some of the common challenges that you come across um, linked, to, linked to diversity? And then, you know, then how can, that, how, how can those organizations overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, so I think the two challenges that I, I, I tend to encounter the most, number one, is with hiring managers. We just can't ignore the fact that they are they are the impediment to whether or not a person, you know, ultimately is extended an offer to join an organization. And so, you know, I don't think that hiring managers are bad people. I just think that there are a lot of biases. There's a lot of pattern matching. There's a lot of, um, you know complacency. There's a lot of it's comfortable routine 
that they operate from. And we have to be able to break through that. We have to be able to shatter some of those conceptions and in many instances, misconceptions. So the hiring managers are an area of focus for me when I go into an organization. Yes, I look at event curation and academic calendar and technology stack and ERGs and employer branding and corporate social responsibility. I look at all of that. I look at even more, but I look at those hiring managers. A good portion of my effort and emphasis is on them. The second issue that I always uncover is plausible deniability. That's a legal term, legal term. And I think that too many people operate with plausible deniability. They know that the data is there, but they don't want to really pay attention, David, to that data. They know that this particular business unit, this particular department, this particular team is operating in a way that is probably a bit nefarious or uh, counterproductive to what it is we're trying to do. But if I don't ask for the data, then I have plausible deniability. I can pretend like I didn't see that. And so I think what I find is that plausible deniability, we try to force organizations to say, I see what it is that you've been looking at. Here's some of the things that you need to be looking at. If you are really genuine and serious about this work, let's focus on this data right here. So I'll give you an example. Anytime I go into an engagement, I say, give me the exit interviews for the last two years. I want to talk to those folks. Mm. I want to find out why they left the organization. I want to hear, I don't want to hear only why you say they may have left. I don't only want to hear from hiring managers why people may have attrited for the team, from the team. I don't want to only believe glass door reviews. I want to talk to David. Yeah. I want to spend some time with David. Give me 10 or 15 minutes with David. And if I can't talk to him, let me read what his responses were on the exit interview. And let me surmise myself whether or not I think that it was true, honest, transparent. You know, I got, I got, there's a little bit of agility that takes place there, but it's another layer of information. So that plausible deniability is something that I think too many leaders suffer from. And I challenge them on that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, the data side of things. And I think, and we certainly, with the organizations that we work with, I mean, I think most organizations are very good at, you know, counting diversity. They're not very good at measuring inclusion. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier, really. I think that the recent McKinsey um, study, I think it's the third one now around, you know, diversity. A, they've shown once again that actually it makes good business sense to have you know, a gender and ethnically diverse leadership team because they, those companies perform better. So there's there's a really good big fact for a start. And second, they found that the big challenge is around inclusion. Um, you know, I mean, how can organizations get better at inclusion? Uh, number one, they can put some representation in their leadership levels. It's a lot easier for me to affect a percentage or a number or a change at the leadership level, at the directorship level far easier than it is for me to do it down here when I have, you know, a thousand people, 10,000 yeah. people, 60,000 people, where up here in leadership, I may have a few hundred people. At the director level, I typically have less than 20. So I can do a lot more from a perception, from a messaging standpoint, if I start to focus on leadership and director level uh, representation. That off the rip, you know, that's a little bit of a street phrase. That off the rip 
shows that an organization is trying to do something to move the needle. And so what I say is sit your ass down and change your corporate bylaws or your corporate charter and do what needs to be done so that we can expand that board of directors. If the bylaws or whatnot says that we can only have 11 people, then change that joint to to say that we can have 13. I know we want to have an odd number, so let's change it to 13 and let's go out and find some representation of people that are not there. That automatically sends a signal to our employee base it sends a signal to the markets in which we do business. It sends a signal to the uh, uh, partners that we collaborate with. It sends a signal, All it's a loud signal that this is important. And then we can begin to work backwards and, and down to the other levels of an organization. We have to send a strong message that inclusion and representation, that belonging and equity are important. And until they do that, David, the rest of it is performative. It is merely lip service. Um, it's, you know, it's non-demonstrable. It, it's it's whatever. It's mediocre. You know, again, I don't want you, I don't want you to pacify me. I don't want you to placate to me. I want you to be honest and of promise to me. That's what I want. I want honesty and of promise. I don't want something that just you know, rubs the, the the bottom side of the belly. You know, when you have a little dog or a cat, they want you to rub their stomach and then they put their paws up in the air and all their feet up because they're happy that you're rubbing the stomach. No, I don't want you to rub my stomach. I want you to feed me. Yeah. I want you to make sure that you understand that I'm about to protect you. I'm going to protect you because I'm going to make sure that that bottom line is, is, is looking healthy. I'll make sure that the creative contribution that I bring is measurable. I'm going to make sure that I'm highly engaged and I'm productive. That's what I'm going to do inside of your organization. We don't need any more reports. We, we have enough reports that say that diversity and inclusion is great for the business case. These are smart people. So I'm not trying to convince them of anything anymore except for get off your ass and do what you say is important. And it's funny you're saying about hiring managers because obviously the data is there. You know who the hiring manager has hired in the past. You know the people who've left that person you know the people that person has promoted within the organization. The data is actually there. As you said, perhaps some people too often are turning a blind eye to what the data is telling them. Absolutely. And they're doing that for far too often. They've done that for far too long. And if we're honest, again, HR, this is where you got to stand in. This is where you got to step in and say, you know what? We ain't doing that no more. Yeah. You know, we're just not doing that anymore. I, I, I just, I feel like we are at a point where we we can turn a corner differently and we can build some extremely strong organizations. I think about VCs and the money that they invest inside of some of these ideas. I'm not suggesting that, you know, social media platforms are, are not worthy ideas, but wow, think about all of the ideas that we we have and can be invested in. Think about all of the business partnerships that we can be pursuing that are addressing climate change or maybe addressing uh, food deserts or uh, addressing policing or addressing pay inequity or addressing uh, femtech, you know, for, from a, a women's standpoint of view, health issues. There's so many things that we can be doing. I believe personally, when we bring representation to these organizations, we put ourselves in a far better position to chase a broader definition of diversity. And when I say broader, what I mean is the products and services that we are delivering, 
the communities and geography in which we do business, the creative contribution and innovation of the people that we have, and then of course the people that we have on our teams. That's the broader definition of DNI for me. And so if we do that, look at how beautiful life could be for us as an organization. I'm chasing beauty. I'm chasing beauty. Well, that I think that's what we want. And, and I think what would be good, I mean, I mean, it's mainly HR professionals that listen to this podcast. So let's, let's inspire them. You know, can you give a couple of examples of companies that have successfully created those types of inclusive organizations? And if you and if and presumably you've worked with some of these companies, how did they create it and how have they embedded it and how they sustained it? Yeah. So I, I think of a small organization here in Baltimore, a company by the name of Alloview, A-L-L-O-V-U-E. From the very beginning, Alloview made it a, important that representation and inclusion was a part of their, you know, hiring process, that hiring journey, that corporate composition. Alloview operates in the space of educational uh, fintech or an ed fintech organization. What that means is they look at how cities across the country allocate their budget for their students in school systems. So we know the history. We know that schools in you know wealthier zip codes or in white neighborhoods are probably more resourced. They have more computers. They have different curriculums, better textbooks, and all of those other things. What happens to the schools in the inner city? They are often short-sighted and whatnot. So Alloview is working on education for our young people, and they are doing it with a very diverse organization, diverse team. Love Alloview. And they've done that from the very beginning when they were 10 people, now to up to where they are, I believe that they are approaching 100. Uh, another organization that I think has done a decent job, I wouldn't say a great job, but a decent job would be Nike. I don't want to get into it real heavy because they are a client, but what I would say to you is that they've had some very public missteps. So you can get out on the internet and you can see some of the things that happened uh, to the organization 2016, 2017, 2018. You can see some of that. I think that they have done a very good job of trying to build transparency, efficacy, speed, alignment. They've tried to build that into their uh, process of hiring. What they said to me is, Torn, how can we make this process uniform all the way through for the people that we bring into our recruiting funnel? I said to people, not just Black people, not just Muslims, not just Indians, not just LGBTQ, the people, because they know how I operate. What I tell them is that if you do DNI right, you do all of recruiting right. So how can we add speed, transparency, alignment, um, efficiency, consistency? How can we do that in our entire process? And I think that they've done a yeoman's job of at least uh, putting in the groundwork to attempt to build that into a system that impacts 60,000 people, if you will. Yeah, and a big brand, you know, that's a, it's Very a, you know, it's a, it's a brand that everyone knows. So, yeah, so a good, good example. And what about HR tech companies? Obviously, there's a lot of HR tech companies out there. You know, we certainly see them when we were at Unleash. You know, it's hundreds of them. You know, are there any particular HR tech companies you're seeing out there that are really helping organizations um, on this topic? Yeah, I mean, there's so many of them, you know, David. I, 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 I hate to start calling names. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from 
uh, the founder of one of the, the organizations out of Seattle. And he looked at my DNI starter kit. Um, and he said, he sent me an email. He said, Torn, why am I not listed in that starter kit? Because inside of my DNI starter kit, I kind of walk people through, look, if you can't afford to bring in a consultant or you're not sure where to start, here are some of the things you should be thinking about. And then in the back, I put in consultants that I think that they should consider, you know, uh, medium outlet, media outlets they should use, uh, HR tech vendors that they should use. And so his name wasn't in that list. And he sent me a, 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 a fun, nasty email like, yo, I've got to be on that list. So I have to update mine. So I don't want to call any names, but here's what I would say. I would say that if you are reviewing HR tech for your organization, because you know your DNA, you know what needs to be done, what hasn't been done, just think about and make sure you ask them, what are they doing to help organizations with their inclusion and representation challenges, efforts, initiatives? What are they doing in that regard? And if they can't give you a substantive answer, then you need to evaluate that. I'm not suggesting that you don't use them. I'm just suggesting that you have to be honest and ask the question and you need to force them and hold them accountable for the type of response that they give you. If in fact you really care about DNI, I say this to all of my clients now, if you are on this mission and you have brought me in as a consultant, I'm going to look at your suppliers list of third-party recruiting agencies and I'm going to reach out to every single one of them. And if they don't have a DNI initiative, I'm going to encourage you to kick them off the list. I mean, why would you be working towards DNI and they're giving you candidates that are not really helping you with your slates? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. So the same thing for HR tech vendors. You got to ask the question and hope that they are aligned with where you are trying to take the organization. Great. Um, and this, your DNI starter kit, is that something that we could put a link to in the when we send the published podcast? I don't know if you can put a link to it. I'm not that technically advanced, but what I can do, I'm good on email. I bet I can get David a copy of it and you and your team could figure out what to do with it. How about that? A PDF or so. Okay, we can do that. Um, good stuff. So last couple of questions. Um, you know, firstly, we're asking all the guests on the show in this series, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but this is in a kind of broader sense now, I guess. What can HR do to drive more value? Especially if we think of the post-COVID post you know well the post 2020 world yeah i just think I, i've said it already you know one focus on people second i want them to focus more on workforce projects and not so much so on workforce planning um i, I need them to make sure that they are thinking about how we will be working uh in the days weeks and months ahead years ahead if, as a matter of fact and think about how we focus on the project-based work that we will all be enduring and undertaking, and not so not only on distributed teams, agile teams. I think that it's going to require that they look at the sum total of of that experience. So more focus on people, more focus on projects. Great. And then last question: You know, what are the one or two things that everyone listening to this episode can do to help make a difference? Hmm. Very good thing. Okay, so one, I think that we can listen. Uh, I think that if, in fact, you are sincere and you really care about our being able to make some progress, that you put yourself in a posture of listening. You know, when I speak on stages, uh, I tend to light up a room from the very beginning. And that's not to impress you, David, but that's to impress upon your listeners 
that I come through real heavy. And I'm very, very forceful in my presence from the very beginning. But then by the time we start moving at top speed in the conversation, people are like, yo, I'm on this journey with Tor. Like I'm really taking this flight with him. He, he's not yelling at me. He, he's yelling so that we're all moving in the right direction. And so I think that people can place themselves in a posture of listening, not in a posture of defensiveness, not in a posture of fragility. Just understand where people like myself, people on the disability spectrum, people uh, from LGBT LGBTQ and other marginalized communities, where are these individuals coming from? What condition and circumstance are they bringing to the conversation? Just listen. Second thing that I will say very quickly, read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. If you read the book, then you will understand a different way how racism, prejudice has been baked into institutions and systems that we all experience or some people benefit from. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Okay, we'll put a link to that as well in the, in the, in the sort of material around this. Funny that you talked about when you come on stage. So I saw you come on stage when you were chairing, um, or you were the MC, I think, for Unleash in, uh, in Las Vegas a couple of years ago. And I was going to be MCing Unleash in Paris or Amsterdam, I think it was, um, three months later. And you are amazing on stage you are familiarly good speaker I thought, oh my god i've got to follow torin so uh so yeah i mean anyone that hasn't seen torin on stage i definitely recommend it once we get back to in-person events again so uh so so thank you torin you certainly made me uh try and polish up my act for paris that's for sure um so thanks for being a guest on the show torin um can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you uh, and, and follow you on social media and find out more about the work you do most certainly, you can follow me across all of social media at Torin Ellis. That's T-O-R-I-N-E-L-L-I-S across all of social media at Torin Ellis. And if, in fact, you download the Sirius XM app on your mobile device, you can listen to my show on Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern uh, here uh, in the U.S., where I talk to primarily executives around career development, diversity and disruption. And then last but not least, if you want to continue to uh, submit yourself to the learning experience, you can catch the podcast that Julie Sowash and I do, crazyandtheking.com, crazyandtheking.com. And we titled that, David, because Julie has a hidden disability. And so she wanted to respond and respect and, you know, be transparent about her disability. And then they refer to me as the king of DNI. No, I can't think of a, a, a better way to describe you, Torin. Thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Mine as well. Thank you ever so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the MyHR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the MyHR Future website. That's all for this episode. 
but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Dan Cable about the neuroscience of helping people love what they do at work. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.